Welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. I'm your host, Ben Schneider, and our guest for this episode is Professor Kevin O'Rourke. Professor O'Rourke is the Chichely Professor of Economic History at Oxford and a fellow of All Souls College. He earned his PhD in economics at Harvard and taught at Columbia Business School, University College Dublin, and Trinity College Dublin before coming to Oxford. He has been president of the European Historical Economic Society and editor of the European Review of Economic History, and he's currently the research director of the Center for Economic Policy Research. Professor O'Rourke has published extensively on globalization, trade, international economic history, and the economic history of Ireland, including the books Globalization and History with Jeff Williamson and Power and Plenty with Ronald Findlay. In the following interview, we discuss his most recent book, A Short History of Brexit, which is available now from Pelican, as well as some of his recent research on trade collapses and protectionism. I began by asking Professor O'Rourke to describe the value that he sees in using economic history and its methods to understand the causes and consequences of Britain's departure from the European Union. Well, I, I mean, I, I wrote the book about Brexit partly as an economic historian, but partly just also as an, an Irishman because we're a small country and everybody's got to do their, their bit. Um, I suppose what economic history has to bring to the discussion, well, it's history really rather than economic history, but a lot of the relevant history is economic, I suppose. is. I mean, it's important to get a handle on where Britain is coming from, if you want to understand Brexit, but it's also important to get a handle on where the European Union is coming from. I mean, so the history of the book is that it was written for a French audience that couldn't be expected to know anything about Brexit. They could perhaps be expected to know something about the European Union, but even there, you know, I think people forget where the EU comes from and what its purpose is and what its logic is sometimes. In particular, I thought it was important not just to tell readers about the history of divisions within the Tory party and you know, to tell them about the long backstory of Britain's ambivalence but whether to join in European integration and, and so on, but to explain to them very clearly the logic of the EEC and then EU itself in particular, the logic of customs unions and the logic of single markets because if you don't understand those things then you don't understand what's going on today at all, you know, and one of the... Uh, so it's great frustration is that there are an awful lot of British uh, MPs who don't understand or who claim not to understand or who would rather not understand the logic of these, these things. And it, and it isn't rocket science, you know, and I think you can explain it in a book in a way that makes it perfectly comprehensible to the lay reader, but, but you've got to know it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So maybe then we can get into the, um, one of the themes that comes out, especially in the first part of the book, which is some of the reasons that the EU was created as a supranational entity with uh, supranational decision-making powers. Um, you mentioned a number of these in the beginning, so preventing conflict. And could you, might you mind going into uh, a bit of detail about why European leaders after the Second World War and then going on throughout the post-war period thought that they needed decision-making at a, at above the level of the nation-state? So there, there are a number of, of reasons for these. Some of them are to do with economics. I suppose they're largely political as well. I suppose one of the ways to think about it is to think about what it is that the EEC is trying to do or what the coal and steel community was trying to do. But let's let's take the EEC. So it's not a free trade area. It's a customs union. Uh, they want it to be a customs union because they think that having a common external tariff will increase Europe's bargaining power, which it obviously does. And they want it to be a customs union because that means that you don't have to have internal border controls to check the origin of goods being transported across those those borders. You may need them for other reasons, but that's a, another story. 
So they wanted a customs union, but if you have customs union, then by definition you have a common external tariff, and then you need rules for deciding what that common external tariff ought to be. And then you need some sort of a rule-making rule. You need to decide how you're going to take those decisions jointly, and that, that, that obviously is supranational. I mean, you're, you're all going to have to agree, and if you don't have to, if you don't agree, well, you know, uh, unanimously, well, you're going to have to decide some other way. Uh, so there's that. It was a customs union, but it also wasn't just a customs union. I mean, from the very beginning, they were worried about uh, what we now call level playing fields. So there was no way, this is Alan Millward's argument. So that's a good example of where a bit of economic history comes in handy. They were very concerned about ensuring that the development of continental-wide market, that they thought was essential for prosperity, and you could refer back to the economic history of the 1930s in order to understand where they're coming from, they were concerned that that continental-wide market not give rise to races to the bottom on regulation having to do, for example, with the length of the working week or workers' statutory entitlement to paid holidays or equal pay for men and women or whatever else. And so you had to have not just a customs union, but a customs union that was complemented with a bunch of social regulations that would ensure that there was a baseline level of protection that would be afforded to people. That was seen as essential because of, again, the experience of the 1930s. Well, but then you need rules, and you need rule-making bodies that can decide on what these rules ought to be. So again, you have, you have supranationalism. So a third example would be agriculture. I mean, it would have made no sense for the EEC to have developed a common market just in industrial goods, because countries like the Netherlands or France or Italy all had important agricultural sectors. Well, all of these countries had agricultural policies, uh, again, because of what happened in the interwar period. They wanted to make sure that farmers weren't disaffected and, and, and had a stake in the system. And they were also worried about food security. So they all had very interventionist agricultural policies. If you were going to include agriculture in the common market, well, then you needed a common agricultural policy. Once again, if you have a common agricultural policy, then you need institutions that will be able to collectively take rules on support prices, on you know, what you do with surplus production, etc., uh, etc. Et so for all sorts of reasons, they needed to be an organisation that had collective rulemaking. And uh, you know, the British didn't like that, but, but that's what was inevitable from a continental point of view. Then, in a sense, in, in structuring the conversation this way, I think I'm contributing to the idea that Britain is somewhat apart from Europe. But in, in the book, you talk about how um, you go back into the 19th century in terms of British trade history, back to the repeal Corn Laws and the repeal of the Corn Laws. But maybe to move to the later 19th century, can you sketch out a little bit the, the political divides in terms of British attitudes towards trade with Europe, trade with other parts of the world, and, and protection as well? So if Europe is coming to the 1950s, reacting to the 1930s. I suppose Britain then comes to the 1950s and has to respond to this European move towards integration, carrying its own history with it, which is rather different in some respects, I mean, not just because it hadn't been successfully invaded during the war, although that's uh, an important part of the story. Its, its economic history has also been different. Um, it had participated in 19th century globalisation like the other countries. It was in many ways at the centre of 19th century globalisation. And from the middle of the 19th century, it had basically adopted a free trade policy, one of whose main aims was to ensure that working people got access to cheap food. 
there had been a protectionist reaction on the continent in, in the 1870s and 80s and 90s that myself and Jeff Williamson described, but that didn't happen in, in, in Britain, although there were political tensions. You know, liberal trade policy won through. And cheap food was a bit of a sort of political totem, you know, it was a bit of a sacred cow. And so when the Brits come to the 1950s, like everybody else, they want to protect their farmers, they want to protect their agriculture, but they, they, they don't want to hurt working people by increasing the price of, of food. And so they decide to protect farmers by directly subsidising them from the exchequer, which obviously is a cost to the exchequer. Uh, and so you, you can import goods, food, uh, you know, low or no tariffs from the rest of the world, largely from the Dominions, you know, but also from the United States and so on. So that's cheap food. The consumers consume that cheap food and then farmers get paid a, a top-up. So in, in Britain, it's the taxpayer that pays for uh, the protection of agriculture. You, you could do that in Britain because agriculture was a small share of the British economy. Even, you know, even in the 19th century, it had shrunk dramatically in relative importance. Uh, you could never have done that in, in continental Europe where agriculture is still, you know, accounting for a huge chunk of employment and output in 1945, and so in continental Europe it has to be the consumer that pays for it, not the taxpayer. So the consumer pays for it by having tariffs erected at the border, and so the farmer's getting higher prices, but it's the consumer that's paying those higher prices, not the taxpayer. So they have a completely different agricultural system, um, and that's going to make it difficult for them to integrate with the continent economically. It's going to require them maybe abandoning that system, maybe going away from their cheap food traditions. That's going to be very difficult for them. So they're they're always tempted with uh, the, the the notion that maybe you could have a free trade in industrial goods only, but that's not going to work for the Europeans because, as I said earlier, you know there are certain European countries who have a real interest in in exporting food. And then the other sort of awkwardness from British point of view is that really for them it would be much better if there had just been a European free trade area that uh, had zero tariffs on intra-European trade, but that didn't involve a common external tariff, you know, because if, if they'd been able to get that, then they would have been able to have continued the preferential trading relationships that they had with the Empire, in particular with the Dominions, that had been instituted in the early 1930s. And, and that would have been, of course, by definition, excluded in a customs union, I mean, when they joined in 1973, they eventually you know, have to get get rid of all of those imperial preferences. And indeed, the question of trade with New Zealand seems to have occupied an inordinate amount of negotiators' time at that time. So it was a difficult issue for them. So, uh, you know, and I suppose the the dilemma from the British point of view is that once the Europeans decide that they want to go down the route of a customs union rather than a free trade area, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, then the Brits have got to decide. Are they going to have preferential trade with the Europeans or are they going to have preferential trade with the Commonwealth? They can't have both. You know, they would prefer to have both, but they can't, so they have to decide. And it's a, it's a very difficult decision for them. Even in the early 60s, I suppose, after, after Macmillan makes his U-turn, decides that they need to join the EEC, you're already getting some conservatives saying, yeah, what about the empire? You know, you're already getting the first uh, signs of sort of a Eurosceptical opposition. Uh, emerging on the, in the Tory party. So that's, I think that's a uh, substantial part of the, the economic motivations that the British had. We'll, we'll come to relative decline, I think, in a moment, but in terms of um, attitudes towards supranational versus intragovernmental um, approaches to cooperation, 
one of the things that I think comes out in the book is the British had sort of a commonwealth model for how they wanted to work with other countries. Can you maybe explain a little bit more about that and the contrast that that has to um, the direction that the, the EEC went in? Yeah, well, so some people say, and some British people at the time said that the reason that the British didn't really want supranational bodies with clearly written down rules for how you decide on rules is that the British don't have a written constitution, as, as, we, all, as we all know. Everything is done informally here. And this was traditionally thought of as a, a strength of the British system. Now it's not clear that looking at what's going on in the country right now, you'd necessarily think that anymore. But they've always viewed that as, as an integral part of the way that they do politics here. And that's how the Commonwealth worked as well. So the Commonwealth, they'd get together for these regular imperial conferences and they'd decide on stuff. Um, you know, and they didn't decide on as much stuff as the EEC. Uh, was later to decide on, but they, you know, it, it wasn't just a talking shop. They tried to promote the mobility of labour within the Commonwealth. They worried about the portability of benefits of various kinds when people move from one Commonwealth country to another. That sort of rings familiar, I think, to people kind of thinking about the the EU today. Um, and of course, they were very important in in, in for uh, um, and the Commonwealth was very important when it came to to to, to thinking about questions of war and peace and so on. And of course the Dominions were a hugely important part of, of Britain's war effort in both the First and Second World Wars, which gives an extra emotional uh, commitment and, and, uh, to these to these links. Um, but yes, they, from the British point of view, the Commonwealth worked perfectly well. It was of course very convenient for the British that they were the leading member of the Commonwealth. And so they you know, tended to sort of get what they wanted to a large extent, and they would have seen no reason why you couldn't have continued in that kind of vein. So they were always in favour of European integration that would be intergovernmental in, in nature that would require consensus and um, which hopefully would give Britain the sort of leading role in European affairs to which it felt itself to be entitled and which it, in fact de facto had in 1945 you know, as the great undefeated European power. But you know, history moved a different way. I mean, eventually, supranationalism won, you know, and um, it wasn't just the British who eventually had to join a supranational institution that they were initially reluctant to join. I mean, all of Europe did. You know, it was only six that went down that road initially, but eventually the sort of gravitational logic of the thing created a sort of snowball effect that led to everybody having to join, choosing to join. By the way, on the question of supranationalism, there is a, a very good book, recent book that people should be reading by this guy Luke van Middelaar where he makes the point that the way that the EU has handled crises recently including the Brexit crisis I mean the key institution hasn't been the commission really hasn't, hasn't been the council of ministers hasn't been the parliament it's actually been the European council which is the body where you know uh, the heads of state and government meet the the body that you know Here's Mrs. May making her pleas for a further extension and they go off and decide whether or not they should grant an extension and so forth. And the important point about the European Council is that they do tend to make decisions on the basis of unanimity, actually. So, in an in important way, I think the, well, this is Van Middelaar's argument, and he's not completely unbiased because he's a council man, he's worked for the council and so on, but he's arguing that when it comes to these big strategic issues, Europe is actually moving in quite an intergovernmental way uh, again, which is a sort of a, an irony, and we've seen that, that we've seen that very dramatically in in the context of Brexit, which which was partly about sovereignty.
you know. But I mean, I don't think anybody would look at say what's been happening now and say, and, and conclude that Ireland is, for example, is less sovereign because of its EU membership. We're we're more sovereign because of our EU membership because we're able to use our position within the EU to 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 leverage our meagre influence and to actually attain objectives that we want to obtain. And if the European Council is taking decisions on the basis of unanimity, well then by definition these questions of democratic deficits that people worry about, justifiably in my, in my view, they don't arise by definition because everybody in that room is, is the democratically elected head of their government and things don't get decided without their say so. So the point you make about Ireland I think is interesting because it links to when you mentioned in the, in the book that in a sense, part of the reason that the Europeans, countries that came together after the Second World War, did that was because they felt they were in relative decline in terms of their power vis-a-vis the rest of the world. One of the most common stories we hear in terms of British accession is, and you, you go through this as well, relative decline compared to, to Europe in the, in the post-war period. So could you sort of bring the, the second element there into um, how that influenced British decision-making um, in the lead-up to accession in the 1970s? Well, it was not, I guess, unusual or surprising or particularly worrying that continental European countries grew more rapidly than Britain in the 50s and 60s because the 50s and 60s is a period of convergence. Uh, Poor countries grew more rapidly than rich countries. Britain started off the period as the richest country, so it should have grown more slowly than France or Germany. I guess what was Worrying was that it wasn't just convergence. Uh, the, the French and the Germans end up overtaking the Brits. That's a different story entirely. And if you look at the sort of uh, simple bivariate regression line, convergence line, you know, initial income on, on subsequent growth, I mean, and Britain is, is lying clearly below that line. So it's, it's doing even worse than it should have been, given its original starting point. And the, you know, the people who are pushing... Brexit now and who say, well, look how, how great things were in the 60s. I mean, in the 60s and the 50s, Britain was regarded by itself as well as by everybody else as the sick man of Europe. And there was a, a big economic motivation, of course, because it was easy, it was an economic thing, uh, behind the British decision to want to join. In particular, they hoped that by joining, they would expose failing British industries to greater competition, in particular from Germany, that that would improve management practices and, and, and productivity and so on. And actually, it worked. Now, in saying that, of course, you're making statements about cause and effect, and those are always dodging. You can never make them with 100% certainty. And there's an issue here, which is that 1973, the accession date, is also the date of the oil crisis. So the 1970s are a bad decade for everybody economically. And that turns out to be bad in terms of what it does to British public opinion, because, of course, many people connect the slowdown in 73 with the decision to join. But if you look at Britain's relative position, it stabilises after 73 and eventually they start um, catching up again. And, and I think that you know, there have been some econometric studies recently that have kind of argued this pretty con- convincingly. I mean, Nick Kraft's recent book, which is a very good little book, bringing together all of his work on British economic history from the Industrial Revolution to today, reprises all of his arguments that he made with Steve Broadbury and on his own about the interwar period and Britain's economic performance and he argues that the interwar period in Britain was disastrous because in the long run it solidified an anti-competitive environment in this country so so he thinks that Britain always had problems with sort of management practices with the nature of the ownership of businesses and and this type of thing but those problems their effects were minimized if you had a competitive environment 
if, when you had an anti-competitive environment such as you had in Britain in the 50s and 60s, then those problems were magnified and Britain seriously lost, lost ground. And so the logical conclusion is that after 1973, you know, you're exposed to competition and, and things get better. Now, Nick doesn't emphasise that in the book. It's there in the book. He doesn't emphasise it, but it's clearly there in the book. And I think that would be a, a reasonable reading of the thing, that 73 is a major turnaround for the better because it, it exposes Britain to the winds of European competition. And, you know, and so by the you know, late 80s, they're, they're doing okay, actually. I think that's a really good sketch of some of the factors on, on both sides, of the way in which the European Union developed and also um, Britain's attitude to it. We'll come back to, to Brexit towards the end, but I'd like to talk about some of the some of your recent your recent papers, which some of them go back in time and some of them take us forward in time. The first one I wanted to talk about was your paper last year in the IMF Economic Review called Two Great Trade Collapses, and there will be links to the papers that we talk about as well as the book in the show notes. But you compare in this paper um, collapse of trade around the beginning of the Great Depression and then 2008-2009. So I think our listeners will be relatively, hopefully, familiar with the context of the more recent example. But would you mind giving a little bit of background on that on that earlier instance? So what did world trade look like in the 1920s before the trade collapse? Well, uh, I suppose in the 1920s, world trade is recovering dramatically. So it collapses, of course, during the First World War, and then it recovers. And it it basically has, has recovered uh, by 1929. I suppose that world trade then, it looks rather different than does world trade now. It's still a very much a 19th century trade pattern. So you have the developing countries, as, as, as you know, they, they were called, who are largely exporting raw materials and primary products of, of various kinds. And you know, those are being exchanged for northern exporting manufactured goods in exchange for other manufactured goods or maybe even services. Um, and that has, I suppose, implications for the nature of the trade collapse back then. So when the trade collapse happens in 1929, I mean, it, it's reflecting collapsing output and collapsing supply, therefore, but also collapsing demand, because incomes are collapsing. Um, uh, northern output collapses, so there's many fewer manufactured goods being produced, and so trade and manufactured goods collapses. Food production doesn't really collapse worldwide, nor does primary product production generally and so the, the exports of the developing countries don't collapse in quantity terms that much but because the output of the primary sector has remained relatively stable and the output of the manufacturing sector has collapsed what that translates into is a relative price shift so the relative price of the raw materials falls very much and so the developing world's terms of trade collapses and so the value of their exports ends up taking a hammering, even though the quantity of their exports doesn't. Um, so so in, in the northern case, trade the trade collapse looks like a collapse in, in the quantities exported, and in the southern case, it looks more like uh, a fall in, in, in export prices. Um, what we did in the paper with the two Allens and with Marcus is we, and, and so the IMF paper is really drawing on that, is we, we looked a little bit in more detail at the import collapse in a northern country in this case, the UK, uh, in the you know, aftermath of 1929. We were looking at what sorts of goods were being imported less. And it looks like exactly the same sorts of goods that, that, uh, that were being imported less by the United States after 2008. So it's, it's things like uh, you know, automobiles or airplanes or you know, you know, demand is falling, falling in particular for big ticket items, it's falling in particular for interest rate sensitive items. 
And so I th we think that our work is, is providing complementary evidence for this thesis of, a, uh, of the great trade collapse of 2008 being, being ultimately driven by, by demand, which is probably not that surprising. So this is the NBER working paper, The Anatomy of a Trade Collapse. It okay. hasn't come out yet. It's forthcoming in the European Review of Economic okay. History. Right, and that's yeah. Alan de Bromhead, Alan Fernhu, and Marcus yeah. Lamb. And one of, the, one of the points you make in that paper is there are two phases to the, the British collapse in that five-year period. Can you just outline the differences between those two and the different causes and, and impact of those? Um, well, so from 29 to 31, Britain... British economy is, you know, we're in the Great Depression, so British economy is not doing very well at all. Uh, its imports are, are are falling very sharply, but it's doing so largely in a free trade context. And then, you know, in thirty one, there's you know, starting in late thirty one, there's going to be the shift towards protection. So from thirty one to thirty three, uh, imports are falling in the context of of a shift towards protection. So it's the first of those two periods. It's more directly comparable with the U.S. trade collapse from 2008 to 2009, because that also took place in a largely free trading context. And it looks like the, you know, the composition of the trade collapse looked very similar in, in, in both instances. After 1931 in Britain, basically what you see is a radical shift uh, in the geographical composition of imports. Uh, you know, so you're, you're, you're seeing imports falling, especially from what they would have called foreign countries, in other words, countries not in the empire. You know, so before then you have imports falling from you know basically everywhere in a roughly symmetrical manner, which is what we also saw after two thousand and eight in America, and after nineteen thirty one it becomes very geographically skewed, the trade collapse, and that kind of corresponds well to you know the work that the same authorial team did in our paper trying to quantify the impact of protectionism in Britain after after 1931, the AER paper, where we, right. where, where we show that British protection, it has a, not a substantial effect on the total value of imports, but it has a very dramatic effect on the geographical composition of British imports. Right, so it orients it much, as you suggest, much, much more towards the empire. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then maybe to, to come forward and, and uh, bring in a little bit more of the comparative angle to 2008, Nine. Another point from the, the IMF economic review paper is that there's a larger immediate collapse in percentage yeah. terms in 2008-9 in terms of world trade. And there's a uh, recovery afterwards for yeah. reasons to do with trade policy as well as other factors. Have, having, having looked at, at this, this earlier uh, example, we've discussed a little bit of the comparison, but to, to return to the comparison to, to 2008-9... One of the points you make in the IMF economic review paper is that there's a larger immediate collapse in percentage terms of, in trade in that example than in the the nineteen early late nineteen twenties early nineteen thirties example. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about some of what what you see as the explanatory factors behind that. Well, I think I mean I can't prove it, but I think the I think the main reason for this, what well, has to do with what I was saying earlier about the, the composition of the, the trade collapse. So what you see is that the Great Depression is, is in the north, it's, a, it's basically a collapse in industrial output. And worldwide, it's a collapse in industrial output that's then complemented with a, a collapse in the fall of the prices of primary products worldwide. And in 2008, um, 
you know, again, industrial output collapses, but the difference is that worldwide industrial output now accounts for a much bigger share of total output than had been the case in 1929, because industrialization has spread all around the world. And so uh, you're getting industrial output, and out, therefore output in general falling, not just in what we would have once called the industrial countries, it's falling all over the world, in China and, you know, all around developing uh, world. And so... Uh, you know, a much greater proportion of world GDP is in this sector whose output turns out to be very volatile at times like this. And so uh, that's got to reflect itself in trade flows. So we do a little sort of calculation, you know, what if the, the composition of world output in, in 2008 had been the same as it had been in 1929, if, if, if agriculture had been as important in 2008 as it, as it had been in the interwar period. And, you know, in that case world trade would have fallen sort of roughly by as much as it did after 1929, uh, whereas in fact it fell by much more, but that's because the composition had shifted. So, so I think that's really what's going on there. All right, okay. Then I think maybe we can turn back towards um, the present issue of, of Brexit. So we're, we're talking on the day after the European Parliament uh, election results have, have come out, and Theresa May has announced that she will resign Friday. We're going to try to avoid asking you to make any sort of political predictions, but um, presuming that the EU, uh, sorry, that UK does leave the EU, as we now expect will happen at the end of October, I wanted to ask, based on the, both the, the research you've done um, in terms of trade collapses, as well as your other, your other trade work and the, the book on Brexit, um, to, to sort of think through some of the potential implications of... Um, uh, of exit for both the, the EU and the UK, and then first, I think maybe it's most logical because of what we've just been discussing to talk about to talk about trade patterns. Do you have a sense of if I suppose it's hard to speculate what British policy will be? Um, maybe it's easier to think about that in terms of the EU. But um, are there some uh, some scenarios that that, uh, that you sort of thought through about this? Well, I mean, I think it's um, it's impossible to to think about what's what the world is going to look like, even economically, even just in terms of trade flows, a year from now, simply because we don't know what form Brexit will take. I mean, we don't know that Brexit's going to happen. It probably will, but but if it does, you know, will it involve will it involve leaving with a deal? I mean, I wouldn't completely discount that that possibility at this stage because the House of Commons is opposed to no deal. Although I think no deal is actually quite likely. I mean, if if there is a deal, well, then nothing will change for a couple of years, you know, and and and. Uh, Indeed, nothing might change for a couple more years after that because the transition could be extended onto the terms of the current withdrawal agreement, and it may end up that, that Britain ends up sort of on a glide path towards uh, an economic relationship with the EU that is quite close. And then I don't think there's any necessary reason why anything much would would would, would change very dramatically. I mean, they probably lose out in terms of services, exports, if they can continue with this thing of wanting to be outside the single market, but, you know, some of these manufacturing supply chains might end up surviving. Obviously, if they go to no deal, then that's much more dramatic, and I think we can expect to see, you know, supply chains fragmenting in some cases, you know, there'll be onshoring going on now, now most of the onshoring will probably be locating in, in, in Europe, you know, but there, there, there may be some supply chains that end up locating more, more, more in the UK that probably will be better that as, as well. You know, I suppose more generally, 
you know, unless I stay in the customs union in the single market, you know, there will be these border controls. And you can say, you know, I've seen some people say, well, look, I'm in the US, Canada, trade, you know, there's, you know, there's border controls, you know, they're in a free trade area, but they're not in the single markets, there's border controls, you know, yeah, things work perfectly fine. But it's one thing to have a, a border that's a 3,000 mile line. You know, then you can have borders. You know, there's 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 no shortage of border crossings, and you can manage it in a fairly efficient way. But I mean, I mean, geography matters, and and uh, the fact is that there's only a few ports in which you can, you know that you can you know, bring stuff in, and and inevitably there will be bottlenecks, and that's you know even if they get their logistics sorted out, I suppose they will eventually, but it might take a long time. Um, it's inevitably going to going to create costs for these sorts of very sensitive just-in-time type of, of operations and I think there will be a lot of disruption but that's what they've that's what they apparently want, that's what they'll get I suppose. So then is it does it seem likely or, or possible at least that um, trying to overthrow the gravity of trade which seems to be some part of the proposed trade policy of at least a group of the pro-Brexit lobby uh, wants would perhaps lead the UK back towards the scenario that we talked about in the late 1960s, early 1970s, of decline relative to uh, to the rest of Western Europe? Well, there's really two questions in there. I mean, they, I mean are they, you know, yes, yes, they want to pivot some of them towards trade, closer trade relationships with the former Commonwealth or the former Empire or maybe the Anglosphere. And you know, there the the simple point is that they're not going to get anything for for free, and that they won't have that much clout when it comes to these negotiations, and they'll have declining clout as the twenty first century progresses, because we're moving into a world where once again the greatest determinant of your economic clout is going to be your population. You know, because GDP per capita is converging, which is a good thing. You know, and so you know they, they, they may say, well, you know, we're 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 the world's fifth biggest economy. This type of stuff that you hear, but I mean, just just inevitably, that's not going to be the case very much longer. I mean, forget about China, forget about India. I mean, you know, there are big countries coming up now, all around the developing world, uh, who who are who are going to have clout. And of course, there's China, and they're difficult customers. And there's America. They've always been fairly ruthless when it comes to to trade deals. Everybody's ruthless when it comes to trade deals. You know, everybody wants something, you don't get anything for nothing. And the UK on its own just isn't going to weigh very heavily in trade negotiations. I also have to say, I, I think that in a way it's a little bit odd, this focus on, on free trade deals, because we live in a pretty globalised world. Tariffs are pretty low. So what we're really talking about now is behind the border barriers to trade. You know, th those are politically sensitive borders to get rid of, because by definition, you're talking about aligning or at least putting constraints on domestic regulation, regulation that would have been thought of as being purely domestic. You know? and so if we think about like what getting rid of behind the bar bar borders barriers to trade with the US would involve, well then straight away you're into very sensitive stuff having to do with you know, health services or food regulations or, or all sorts of things. And we'll see if there's a political census in this country for that kind of thing. I mean, I have my doubts, I have to say. I think that they are they are more European than they than they realise in lots of their basic uh, preferences. 
As to whether they resume their kind of slow decline from before 1973 vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Europe, well, if there's a messy Brexit, well, I think, I think that there will be a very rapid decline vis-a-vis -vis everybody, but it will be, you know, that will just be a short run cost, and then they'll eventually adjust to it, and, you know, it, it won't be Armageddon, it will be very messy for a few years, and they'll eventually adjust, and, you know, there'll be a few percentage points of GDP poorer than they would have been. But I, you know, they're a rich country anyway, so I suppose they'll, they'll survive. But it won't do anything for their relative standing. And I suppose the real problem is that you know, that adjustment phase is likely to be very messy. And it's going to make a lot of people very angry. And the politics of it are going to get very tricky. And I actually think that the major costs that this country now risks are political costs. abstract from that question, just there's just the question of the political divisions in society, you know, that are very worrying, I think. Then, to close, maybe, I'd like to, to pivot back to sort of where we started in terms of the EU's decision-making, supranationalism, um, and how Britain's departure, having come in as a relatively intergovernmental, pro-intergovernmental state, probably has been more on that side than, than most of the other member states, but then its departure, how that might impact the way decisions are made in the rest of Europe. You have a, a major force for more intergovernmental decision-making, departing from the EU in the shape of the UK, and how that might impact the way in which decisions are made in the rest of Europe, in the EU at least. Well, I mean, I think that as the EU becomes more of an actor that interacts with other major powers on its borders, decision-making sort of moves towards the European Council. This is the von Middelauer thesis that I mentioned earlier. And the European Council is, is essentially an intergovernmental body. So I think that in many important ways it's it's becoming more intergovernmental anyway. You know, I think the supranational bit is largely got to do with the way that we uh, have rules governing what can be legally bought and sold and and, and, and this type of thing. You know, and there'll always be that going on in the background, but I mean, there, there's there's a limit to that. It, you know, it, it rulemaking can only take you so far, and in particular, rulemaking can't tell you how to react in an emergency situation. You know, so once you have a, a common rule book, well, then you have the common rule book, and then you know, there, you, know you may tweak it here or there, but politics won't effectively be defined by that. Politics will effectively be designed, defined by things like how you deal with immigration. That there the European Council has been very important. It's going to be defined by how we deal with Russia. That's a European Council matter. It may be defined by how we deal with the UK. That'll be, you know, and also for the European Council to, to decide. As Europe tries to position itself in a world that's becoming increasingly difficult, I think that it, it will become more intergovernmental, which will, of course, hamper its effectiveness. You know, but on the other hand, I mean, they have shown quite a capacity for, 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 for unanimously agreeing on courses of action when fundamental interests really are at stake. Just look at how effective they've been during Brexit. You can't uh, simplify it either, either way. Those grounds for both optimism and pessimism, I suppose. Thank you, Kevin O'Rourke, very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Centre for Economic and Social History. If you've enjoyed this show, you can subscribe and find more episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate positive ratings and reviews because they help us spread the word about the show. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter at OxfordESH 
or email us at oxeshpodcast at gmail.com. The podcast was edited and produced by Pennerat Anamathana, Catherine Crossley, Julia Greening, Meredith Paker, and Alex Wolfers. Until next time, I've been Ben Schneider. Thanks again for listening.